Today's scripture reading is taken from John 1, verses 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two, was two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And, say, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Thus said the Lord. Thank you, Chipta and Jesse. Guys, just again to reiterate about the membership meeting, uh, that is, of course, uh, for members. And if you are a member here, we'd love to have you join. We have a lot of exciting new information about new programs and different things happening uh, in the church in the city. Uh, and also of uh, one of our elders, Gray, who some of you know, who will be coming back uh, in July. And he'll be helping out in, in a lot of ways for the church. So we'd love for you to come. And if you're not a member, if you're a visitor and you just want to know more about the church or you've been coming a lot and you want to know even more than what you know, we'd love for you to come. Uh, so please join us. We've bought plenty more food than those who have RSVP'd because we experienced that to be the best practice uh, here. Uh, so we have a lot of food. Uh, you guys, please feel free to come and join us uh, if you'd like. It'll be here uh, right after worship service. Okay. So let's jump into the sermon and into the text today. So we've taken a break from our series of John, which is the big series that we're doing uh, right now. And we've taken quite a long break, I think five weeks, because we went through Jonah and, and, uh, and somebody else preached last week. Uh, and at this pace, we might finish in about three years, but that's okay. Uh, we're, it was going to be done in two years anyway, so let's just add another year to it and take long breaks in between. No, but seriously, uh, it'll be good for us to take breaks. But now let's jump, jump back into the book of John. And if you remember from our series, John is what we call a gospel. A gospel is just a book that records the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. Okay, the gospel is Jesus Christ dying for our sins, that we're saved through him and him alone. But the gospel, there are four gospels in, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. So we're now in the gospel of John. We're still in chapter 1. Uh, and after talking extensively from verses 1 uh, uh, to verse 34, we've talked about this in the past few weeks, after talking extensively, extensively about who Jesus is, that he is God, he's a creator, and he became man in verses 1 to 18. In verses 29 onwards, he's the Lamb of God who came to die for our sins and take our sins uh, 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 unto himself, paying for them not by silver or gold, but by his precious blood. This is verses 29 to 34. And now we move on in the narrative. We see Jesus Christ taking his first disciples. We see three of them, Andrew, Peter, and another disciple who is not named. We'll talk about that more later. We see in our passage today, if verses 1 to 34 is true, if Jesus is truly God who became man, the Lamb of God who has died to take away our sins, if, if this is truly who he is, then the natural response of encountering Jesus is to follow him. He's the only one worthy that, of ultimately submitting to. He's the only one worthy for us to give our lives to, truly following Hence, the progression of the narrative, if this is who Jesus is, we now then follow him as Andrew, Peter, and another disciple who's not named does. But now we come to the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We hear that all the time, right? Follow Jesus, follow Jesus, almost becomes a cliché. And I pray as we study our passage today, hopefully we'll get a clear understanding of what that means to follow Jesus, how to think about it. And how to think about it in real life, in our lives now, today. How do we know what it means for us right now to follow Jesus? We'll, we'll, we'll try and make that as tangible as we can, uh, as permitted by the text. So there's three things I want to point out from this text. Okay? They're all the same sentence, but I'm going to emphasize different words of those sentences as making three points. The first point is, follow Jesus with your whole person. The emphasized word there is whole. Second point, follow Jesus with your whole person. 
The emphasis there is the word your. Third point, follow Jesus with your whole person. The emphasized word there is person. Okay? So follow Jesus with your whole person. Those are the three points, different uh, 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 parts of it emphasized in different times. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right into our sermon. Lord, we thank you, and we come to you now, and we um, want to beg you for your mercy, even as we try and understand your word, that you be gracious not only to our hearts, but also to our minds, that we can really understand what John is trying to say, or rather what you are trying to say through John uh, in your scripture. And thank you, Lord, uh, that you have given us a gospel to study, that we may know deeper what it means to be in a relationship and follow the creator of the world who has died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first point. Jesus, oh, follow Jesus with your whole person. Okay? There's been a huge theme in this book, and it's been very clear from verses 1 to 34 and even onwards, that all our attention, all worth, all focus is to be given to Jesus and to nobody else. You see on the opening of the Gospel of John, all about Jesus' identity, verses 1 to 5, talks about he's God, the Word, who has been made flesh. He's the creator of all. Verses 14 to 18 talks about um, he's, he's, he's come to die for us. And then verse 19 to 34, he's the Lamb of God. He deserves all the attention. The book starts off with Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And because of this, John the Baptist, not John the author, John the author is the one who wrote this gospel. John the Baptist is another John that John the author wrote about. John the Baptist is an example for us of how to live in this reality, that Jesus is Lord. If he truly is, if we claim to believe he truly is who he says he is, then our whole lives, as exemplified by John the Baptist, should be transfixed fully on Jesus. As John the Baptist, we see in verses 19 and 34, cares nothing about his own fame, cares nothing about his personal glory, about his social image. But throughout those verses, he continues to push everyone towards Jesus, everyone to Christ, no matter the cost to himself. And here, in our passage today, verse 35 to 46, John the Baptist, once again, puts Jesus Christ on the spotlight, even at his own expense. Let's read verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, the words, Behold, the Lamb of God, might seem to be a repetition to what he said before, because if you were in the sermon or if you've read the gospel before, in chapter 1, verse 29, a few verses before this, John the Baptist had said the very same thing. He saw Jesus coming, chapter 1, verse 29, toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And now again he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. But there's a difference in when he said it the first time and when he said it now in verse 35 to 36. The first time, if you read it again, he says it in front of the public, in front of everybody, in front of people that he was baptizing, people who want to come and see what his ministry was all about. But this time he said it not in front of the public, but in front of who? Two disciples. What is he saying? He's saying, the glory I get for my public image, I have no concern for that. Look at Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Look, stop looking at me. Look at Christ. And the glory I get from my personal disciples, I have no concern for either. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. Only follow me if I'm following Christ. Look at him. Follow him. Go to him. And he had no problem with two of his disciples just leaving and following Jesus. He was actually glad about that. Cling to him. Trust him. Follow him. Now again, we hear those things, but what in the world does that mean? To follow Jesus. What, it's so intangible, and some of us may even feel a sense of frustration when we hear those two words, follow Jesus. I think the frustration can be caused by many things, but mainly, I think, because of two reasons. First, as we've said, the term following Jesus seems too intangible. It's so airy. You can't really grasp it. What does that look like in my life? It's so intangible, and it's kind of frustrating because we don't have a specific way for us to do it. Is it, is it the same for everyone? Does it change depending on what season of life you're in? What does it mean for me? Does it mean I need to pray, the, pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more, share the gospel more? What does that mean, follow Jesus? 
Or maybe another frustration is caused because, unfortunately, some of us may have had bad experiences in the past with spiritual leaders who has abused those two words, follow Jesus. And when we hear it, we might cringe a little bit because all we remember was that guy or that girl who used those two words to impose things on us that Christ might not have done or asked us for. So I hope, as we look through this passage, it can soothe some of these frustrations. Okay, so let's get into it. After the two of, two of John the Baptist's disciples, right, um, Andrew and the unnamed disciples, followed Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, and Andrew and this unnamed disciple left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. That's what we see in the first few verses. Then in verse 30 at 39, the story continues. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. We get a lot of what it means to follow Jesus from this two verses. Okay, in this first point, I want to I point out to us that how following him involves our whole person. That means our emotions, our heart, our actions, our hands, and our cognition, our head. Emotions, actions, cognitions, heart, hands, and head. How do we see that in verses 38 to 39? Let's look at it again. First, he says, Jesus turned and asked them a question. What are you seeking? Following Jesus, therefore, includes the right motives. Be mindful. Not everybody who might look like externally to be following Jesus actually wants more of Jesus. Jesus didn't assume that. He saw people following, and he said, what do you want? What are you seeking? He didn't assume they were seeking him. A lot of people seek Jesus for other things, mainly, possibly to get some blessings in their finances or some earthly prolonging of their life. Those are good things. Those are great things to want, of course. But oftentimes, following Jesus has become more about getting those things than it is about actually wanting more of Jesus. See, what are you seeking? What do you want? Following Jesus involves the right motives, the right heart. Following Jesus includes the heart. Secondly, you see these two disciples answering Jesus' question, what are you seeking, with a question of their own. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Asking where you're staying means, I want to go and follow you where you're going to go. Where are you staying? Where are you at? And especially note the time in verse 39. It was about what? The 10th hour. And whenever a narrator adds a small detail like that in a story, you have to ask yourself the question, why, why did he bother to add that in? There's, there's surely a purpose to it. And in this case, it's to communicate the disciples' intentions. It was about the 10th hour, which means 4 p.m. You count it from 6 a.m. So the day was about to end. People are about to turn in for the day and be done with the day. And when he's asking, where are you staying? It means, where are you going to stay for the night? Where where will you be? We want to follow you there. You see, we want to be with you. And to this, how did Jesus answer? Come and see. Come and see. Come, follow me. Physically pick up your feet Take steps, move yourself, and follow me. So following Jesus does not only involve the heart, it involves the actions. You're actually doing things. You're actually following him. When? Not just a segmented time of the day, but day and night, the 10th hour, the 4th hour, whenever. You're following Christ, actually doing for him. Not only the heart, but also the hands. Thirdly, notice... How the disciples identified Jesus throughout this passage, verse 38, again. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Rabbi is the highest address you can give to a spiritual leader at the time. Rabbi, he's the guy. But is that all Jesus is to them? Is, Is all that Jesus is a good teacher? No, in verse 41, Andrew, one of the disciples, said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. This is he. This is the one who has been promised since the Old Testament, since the creation of time, who's going to come and take away the sins of the world. They knew who Jesus was accurately. 
See, following Jesus not only involves the emotions, the heart, the right intentions, what are you seeking, but also the actions, the hands, come, follow me. Physically, come, follow me. But also the cognition, the head, which means correct doctrine about who Christ is. In other words, good theology. Knowing who Jesus truly has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. See, we can have all the emotions we want. We can do all the actions we want to do. But if our emotions and actions are not dictated and directed by who Christ has revealed himself to be in the scriptures, we cannot then claim to be following the Christ of the scriptures. We're following someone, the Christ of our imaginations. See, it involves all three. To truly follow Christ, you must know who you're following, you must actually desire who you're following, and you must physically follow who you're following. All three. The doing, the thinking, the feeling, the heart, the hands, and the head. Now, I get it that some of us here may have our own preferences, okay? Um, the heady ones might think that ours is the best way to follow Jesus. The ones who are more action-oriented might think that the doing is, 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 is most beneficial. And the emotional ones are saying, oh, let's not be so legalistic. And let's, let's go to the heart. And let's, let's really feel and know the right things. But no matter what our preferences are, um, uh, we must not be tempted to make our preferences as the ultimate way to follow Jesus. Or maybe sometimes the only way to follow Jesus. A conversation between these three people might look like this. An action-oriented person might come up to a heady person and say, stop living in your head. All you do is study every day. Just go and do. And feelings? Pff, feelings are for pansies. Just like rest. Rest is for pansies. I'll rest when I die. Right? The action-oriented guy, that, that's kind of his MO. And then the thinker might respond to, to this doer and say, yes, but see, there is an erroneous triperspectival dichotomy emphasized there by succumbing to the Platonic view of anthropology. I have to write that down because I'm not that smart to just quote that. And the one who's more emotional might chime in to the conversation and say, hey, guys, how are you feeling right now? Do you feel attacked by the doer's words? Is that why you threw out all those complicated terms? Is that a self-defense mechanism? All right. <laughs> we all have our preferences, and we all have what we're temperamented to. And we laugh because we know it's true. We tend to idolize our own tendencies and champion it over and above others, or perhaps say it's the only way to truly follow Jesus. And that's, it can be dangerous if that goes unchecked and too far. See, if we idolize the heart over others, we'll fall into emotionalism. Emotionalism says, whatever feels better or more intense must be what's most right. What I feel is more important than what I do, or more important than what is actually true. This is dangerous, because then you can actually be more in love with your sense experience than you are with Jesus. And you can easily be manipulated and misled by people. All it takes is a good public speaker and the right lighting to touch your emotives and make you feel certain things that you'd feel in a U2 concert. And whatever he says doesn't matter and goes unchecked because whatever feels more right, more better, must be most right. It's dangerous to idolize that over the others. It's also dangerous to idolize the hands or the doing. That's called volitionalism. Your volition, right? You're, you're doing your work. Volitionalism says, as long as we do more and get more results, it doesn't matter what we feel or it doesn't matter what, what truth is. And that's dangerous too. That's how people justify workaholism and the idolatry of success, of results. Plus, we'll have the tendency to water down important doctrines just to get more people to come to church. You see, if we idolize the uh, volitionalism, the, the, the doing, the results, if we idolize the head, that's called intellectualism. Intellectualism says, I don't have to do or feel. I just have to have the right information, the most accurate, precise doctrine and theology. That's what's most important. Nothing else matters. First of all, that's a 
wrong definition of what knowing truly means. Knowing involves your whole person knowing something, not just the information in your head. But on top of that, it can easily justify laziness and disobedience in our actions and our unwillingness to enter into the messiness of emotions and use our head as a protective mechanism, really, um, to just not feel and not do. So we must not idolize our preferences or we must not demonize the others. Following Christ involves all three, the cognitive, the emotive, the volition, the thinking, the feeling, the doing. What are you seeking? Is it me? Come and see. Follow me. It involves everything. What, what, is, what is the greatest commandment? Mark 12, 13. You guys have heard this before. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, with your whole person. But let's get more specific now. Does that mean that I have to be all three at all times? Does following Christ look the same for everyone in every season of life? No, it is not. Let's go to a second point. Follow Jesus with your whole person. The emphasis here is in your. See, the way we follow Jesus may vary from person to person for many factors. It doesn't look exactly the same to the minute details in every season of life. Now, before I move forward in this, I realize we get nervous when I say this, so let me do a quick side note. Let me be clear. First of all, I'm not promoting relativism. A lot of isms today. I hope you can follow. I'm not promoting relativism. Relativism says... We get to decide on our own what following Jesus means. Okay? No, God gives us clear commands of what to do. Share the gospel, study my word, make disciples, give, serve and receive within a church body. There are clear instructions of what to do. No matter what our tendencies are, we must follow God's command as he's prescribed in the scriptures and worship him in the way he's prescribed in the scriptures. We can't make up our own commands or just pick and choose commands that suit our temperaments most. I'm not promoting um, uh, relativism. Second, I'm not promoting individualism. Sometimes an urgent need might present itself in front of you. And it'd be most faithful for you to meet that need, even though by meeting that need, it might make force you to go out of what your temperament is most leaning towards. Okay, for, for example, say an opportunity presents itself clearly that God has positioned you in a way with somebody to share the gospel. I mean, it's laid out on a silver platter in front of you. The guy comes to you and says, I think I want to receive Christ, but I don't really know what that means. Can you please tell me how my sins are forgiven by him? Give me two verses. We can't say, you know what, let's just sing, because I'm more the emotional type. <laughs> Can we just sing? Is that okay? No, it's just because you're the emotional type. You can't, you can't do that. Go to some verses with him and walk out of your comfort zone a little bit. Or if a particularly resource, resourceful church placed in a city where there's a majority poor, they can't just say, yeah, we're not going to give or act in that way because we're more the heady people. So we're just going to study a lot of theology and study a lot of dropping and not, not do that because that's not our temperament. We can't do that. If certain needs presents itself, you have to move out of it. So to be clear, I'm not making excuses. I'm not promoting relativism or individualism. But there is a sense in that each of us has been made different by God, both through our nature and our nurture, the things we're born with and who God has placed us with growing up. And these differences often we have no control over. For example, there are many things we did not choose about our nature. We're born with different gifts and weaknesses. Some, some might even be born with different temperaments, some might argue. Health issues, physical impairments, cognitive brain functionalities, a lot of these things are out of our control. We didn't choose these things. But not only things of our nature that's out of our control, often things about our nurture is also out of our control. And our nurture, our caregivers, how we grew up in life, plays a huge role in shaping who you are and your personalities now. For example, you didn't choose to be born into the families you were born into. You might have been born into a wealthy family or a not-so-wealthy family. You might have been born into parents with emotional stability or with parents that don't have emotional stability, with family that values education and able, are able to pay for it, or into families that don't really value education and don't have the ability to pay for it. We didn't control that. God did. 
But all these things of nurture play a huge role in shaping who we are, our abilities, limitations, strengths, and weaknesses. See, there's a lot of factors about our lives, nature and nurture, that's out of our control. And all of this contributes to who God has shaped us to be. Now, the commandments stay the same. They don't change. Jesus is Jesus. The Bible is the Bible. But how it plays out in the details of your life may vary. One more time, just so we're clear, in case somebody listens in now, I'm not making excuses of relativism and individualism. Jesus' commands does not change based on people's parenting experience, educational history, or season of life. I'm not promoting defeatism as well, where because we've had a bad childhood and because of this, then we say, oh, well, I'm just not, I just can't do it, so I'm not going to follow or do that. No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? What I am saying is that it's impossible for every person to follow Jesus to the minute details in the same exact way. For example, there's no way an intellectually type person born into a wealthy family that can afford further education expects someone else with a brain impairment who was born into a family who can't afford good education to be able to comprehend the Bible and theological categories in the same way. That's just unrealistic. It, it, you, we can't do that. Nor can the emotional type person born under parents with healthy emotional interactions and teaches them how to really navigate through your angers, your shame, your fears, can expect the same emotional capacity from somebody else who was born under parents who are consistently physically and verbally abusive. There's no way this person's emotional capacity will be the same as this other person's. It's going to be different. Or perhaps maybe it's a season of life. Maybe it's not your past. Maybe it's where you are currently in life. It'd be impossible to, accept, uh, to expect faithfulness from a mother of two kids to be the exact same type of faithfulness that a single college student does in a campus ministry on campus. It'd actually be unfaithful for the mom to do that because they'd be neglecting her kids. The commands stay the same, but how they play out in your life vary based on nature, nurture, season of life, many things. Okay, where did I get this from our passage? Let's, let's always get back to it, okay? It's kind of funny, actually. It's a very interesting theme we see in the book of John. Uh, we see the seeds of that theme in our passage now, but also see more of it throughout the book as we study it. And that's the relationship between the disciple Peter and the unnamed disciple Okay, this theme will be more obvious as we go further into the book, but let's talk about it um, as it's revealed in our passage today. Let's go back to verse 37. Verse 37, we see how many people leaving John the Baptist to follow Jesus? Two, right? Two people. One of them in verse 40 we know is Andrew, right? Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one was Andrew, and even go details into whose brother Andrew was, but mention absolutely no information of the other disciple. Who is this unnamed disciple? Well, it's John himself. It's John the author, the one who wrote the book. There's many biblical evidences in the book of John that points to this. There are other books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is also books in the Bible, and if you look at the writing, it's almost the exact same. And also other evidence from early church history that points, clearly points, that this is John the author, this unnamed disciple. He refers to himself in an unnamed way for some reason. We can't get into, into it much, but every time John the author addresses himself in, in his gospel, in his book, um, he, uses the, he uses an unnamed term, the other disciple, or this title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. And what's funny, every, almost every time John refers to himself as the disciple of Jesus' love or as the anonymous disciple, it's always in comparison to Peter. In these instances, when John the author, the unnamed disciple, is compared to Peter, it's always seen as Peter being the one that's loud and quick to act, initiator, he, he's the doer. John, the author, is always portrayed as the observant, quiet type, portrayed as enjoying and sitting near Jesus. He's always physically closer in proximity to Jesus. In comparison to Peter, that's always out there, doing, doing. And it's actually kind of comedic if, if you look at it. At first, you can, it can seem like it's a rivalry 
between John the author and Peter, like he's comparing himself to Peter throughout his own gospel, which is the most narcissistic thing you can do, is write a book about yourself being better than another person. It's not that, but it could seem like that. Let me just read some verses um, um, that, that show that. John chapter 13, verse 21 and 24. This is during the Passover meal before Jesus was crucified. Jesus did some teaching to them. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. John included the fact that, hey, I was sitting closer to Jesus, and Peter had to ask me what Jesus said to get information <laughs> from Jesus. That seems kind of petty, but that's not what he's trying to do. He's, he's trying to tell us that I'm, I'm the kind that clings closer and sits closer to him, and I'm observant. I'm, I'm, I'm not this type A out there guy like Peter, who's out there doing. John 21, 3 to 4, after Jesus resurrected. This is, this is funny. Jesus resurrected, and they ran to the tomb, uh, so Peter went out with the other disciple, the other disciple is, is John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Why would you include information about you beating this guy in a, in a race? He's not trying to say, hey, by the way, I'm a faster runner than Peter. He's, he's trying to say, I'm always the one that wants to get closer to Jesus first. I'm always close in proximity. Unlike Peter, who's type A, out there talking, doing, leading. I'm, I'm, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. I'm, I'm closer. Last one, John 25, 21, 7. Also after the resurrection, resurrection uh, John and Peter were fishing together. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, therefore said to Peter. Again, it's always, Peter's always there when John describes himself as that. It is the Lord. He, they're in the boat, and they saw Jesus on the shore. And who was the one that first identified Jesus? Was it Peter? No. It was the more observant one, John the disciple whom Jesus loved. It is the Lord. But Simon Peter is the one that was first to act. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put out his outer garment. He stripped naked, uh, for he was stripped for work. And then he threw himself into the sea. And just, he, he, the picture is this naked guy swimming to Jesus. And John's like, whoa. <laughs> like, I just, that, that's kind of the picture here of, of John comparing himself to Peter. So I'm the more observant type. I notice things maybe sooner than he does. But Peter is kind of the, the, the leader, the one that does, and it's quick to act. Even in our passage today, who was the one who Jesus took in as a disciple first before Peter? It was John. It was Andrew and the unnamed disciple. He's saying that, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the clo- that my role is, this, this is me. I'm the closer one. Okay, he's saying, and then in verse 41, Peter was taken as a disciple. First, it was John in verse 39. So you see the seeds of it here. We explore it later in the book. And we can see that as a rivalry, as a comparison, but it's not. Let me just look at some other passages that will convince us it's actually not a rivalry. Okay, Peter is often portrayed in a very positive light in the book of John. In our passage today, in verse 42, Jesus looked at him, Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. Not John the author, but another John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is a Hebrew name, which means rock. And to a Hebrew reader, that would be obvious that Cephas is rock, meaning leader, meaning the one who will maybe have more of a leadership role in the apostolic circle and in the early church. And we do see that. If we read the book of Acts, we do see Peter having more of a role in that, more of a leadership role in that. But, but, but the author added... Um, which means Peter, Petrus. Peter in Greek also means rock. John did not want people to miss what Cephas meant because the majority of readers at the time were Greek. He said, guys, don't, don't miss the point. Jesus is anointing Peter as the rock, as, as the one who will be more of the, uh, play more of a leadership role in, in the early church and in the apostolic circle. And on top of these, there are many other times in the book where Peter is described as favorable. Example, when other disciples left Jesus Christ after Jesus did some kind of hard teaching, it was Peter that stayed and stuck behind Jesus. In chapter 18, when, when the guards were trying to get Jesus from the garden to be crucified, who was the one that fought the guards away and cut the guy's ear off and did all that? It was Peter. He, he's, just, he's always just out there. doing. That's how he's portrayed here. Okay. So if John describes Peter in a positive light, and it's not rivalry, on top of that, we also know that John and Peter were friends before Jesus and after Jesus' death. 
few more verses. Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Before they became disciples, we see Peter and John fishing together. They're business partners. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, who's Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. They knew each other before. They had a relationship beforehand. Then after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, you see in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, Peter and John preaching the gospel together before a group of people and caused them to be imprisoned together. It is clear that the unnamed disciple John and Peter were intimate friends before they met Jesus and after the death and resurrection of Christ. So the reason why John included the difference between them wasn't a comparison, wasn't a rivalry. It's to tell us, do you not see this contrast? Why is John always mentioned himself in the book in comparison to Peter? Peter is the louder, type A, quick to go out there and do for Jesus. And John is the more attentive, observant, wanting to stick closely to Jesus. Not rivalry, but to show the same Lord the same commandments, not the exact same way of following. Commandments don't change. Jesus does not change. But the way the details and how it plays out in the disciples' lives aren't exactly the same. It varies. Okay. Let's, let's uh, uh, take example uh, from our passage, the other apostle, Andrew. Okay. The third disciple mentioned here. What does he do right after he follows Jesus? You see him sharing the gospel to his brother Peter. Verse 41. Look at verse 41. He first found, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And verse 42, he brought Peter to Jesus. And then two other times when Andrew's mentioned in the Gospel of John, it's always him sharing the Gospel. So that's a good, good place to start, right? Sharing the Gospel. That's one way in how we follow Jesus. And that command does not change depending on your educational history or your temperament or, or whatever. But does it mean that the intensity and the manner in which we do so has to be the same for everyone in every circumstance in every season of life. No. Peter did so. How? By being a leader, the rock in an apostolic, in the apostolic era and an early church. Throughout the book of Acts, you see Peter leading, very outspoken, type A, kind of takes charge, big picture guy. John is not portrayed that way. Even in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the book of Acts, when you see Peter and John preaching the gospel together, read it and tell me who does 90% of the talking. Peter. Every time John talks, it's always them talking both together. Peter did a whole sermon. Peter's the one out there. Does that mean that John is excused from sharing the gospel? Does that mean John does not have to tell people about Christ? Of course not. So how does John share Christ with others if he's not the outspoken leader type? Well, you see in chapter, in chapter 3 and 4 of the book, of, the book of Acts, John still accompanied Peter, didn't he? He was still with Peter. He still did say some things. And he was in prison together with Peter because he shared the gospel. And, oh, by the way, he wrote a whole book of the life and death of Jesus Christ that we're studying today. You see, he's still sharing the gospel. He's still telling people about Christ. Same Lord, same commands, but the minute details of their faithfulness aren't exactly the same, and that's okay. See, unfortunately, in many churches and in many Christian ministries, you know who gets rewarded more? The Peters. You know who gets rewarded less, usually? The Johns. The more type A, extroverted, big vision, leader type people are recognized more and given more status. And the not type A, introverted, more observant, attentive type people are not given um, um, recognition. And, unfortunately, do you know why the Peters get more attention, usually in churches and ministries, by leaders and by pastors? Because they're the ones that will most likely create a big ministry for us. Right? They are they're the ministry leaders. They're, they're the ones who's going to make our dreams of a big church and, and all the fame come true. A lot of people, big impact in the church. Pastors are sinful too, did you know? And you know what this sort of dynamic does and creates in a church setting or in a ministry? It can shower the Peters with pride and it can crush the Johns with guilt. 
Because the Johns think Christian maturity looks like this. And our author, John, is saying, no, it does not. You follow Christ. Not individualism, not relativism, but you follow Christ. Follow him with your whole person, but understand what is faithful to you may look different than what faithfulness looks to another Christian due to many factors. As we've said, a mother with two kids will not be able to live out their lives in a way that a single person in college would. If this single person lives faithfulness the way this mom does, it'd be weird and unfaithful for them. If this mom lived her faithfulness in the way this single person in college who thinks they're busy but really only has 20 hours of class a week, not really busy at all, um, if, if, if they try and do that and live up to that, they're just going to be thrown with guilt all the time. And it'd be unfaithful for them to live their life like that. I mean, other ways, for a person who does not have full cognitive capacity, their faithfulness may not look the exact same with people who, um, uh, with great cognitive capacity and has a good education. There's so many factors. Okay? Now, the type A's at this point might be a little nervous. Because we think, I'm a type A, by the way, we think that when we address these things, the introverts can use it to justify their idolatry of laziness and comfort, right? We're scared of that. Don't say those things, Tazar. They need to be out there. They need to... Sure, that can happen. But to be honest, the type A's, extroverts like me, often avoid addressing this so that we can justify our idolatry of success. Of course, I'm not saying use these things to justify your sins and idolatry, but this is what John is saying. I don't follow Jesus the same way Peter does. I'm the more quiet, observant, perceptive, wanting to stick by Jesus' side type. And Jesus didn't name me the rock. Jesus named Peter the rock, Cephas. I'm, he's, he's leading. He has a big vision. He's like, that's his role. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. I'm not the disciple Jesus loved more than Peter and the other. But I, that's my kind of, if you can say, that's my MO. I'm the, one, I'm the one he loves. I'm the one with him. But still, this is confusing, right? Okay, so we know we're supposed to love the Lord with our heart, our, our, our heads and our hands, our emotions, our thinkings, our doings. But at the same time, we all have our own uh, temperaments and characters and gifts and weaknesses based on our nature and our nurture. How does, let's make this more tangible. How can I know how to follow Christ right now? Okay, I know it's different than how it looked like 10 years ago. I know it'll be different than how it looked like 50 years from now. So how does it look like? What's a guiding principle for me? Well, here's a question that might could help. I would ask myself this question to know what faithfulness looks for me in this season of my life. Based on who God has made me to be through my nature and nurture, based on who God has made me to be, and based on my current season of life, how am I to be most obedient and faithful to my Jesus? Based on who God has made me to be through nature and nurture, and based on my current season of life, how am I to be most obedient and faithful to my Jesus? Ask that question repetitively, always, in different seasons of life. And see, people are scared that if we ask this question to ourselves, we're going to end up doing less for Jesus, and we're going to end up justifying our laziness. I think you'd be surprised that when you do ask this question to yourself, you're going to realize how much more you actually are to do for Jesus. <laughs> how much you're not doing enough yet, maybe. Or maybe how much guilt I've been putting on myself that's not due uh, upon me. But as we move on to our third point, here's what's defeating. Our problem in following Jesus, really, isn't getting the right answer of what it looks like right now. Often we know what it looks like. Often we know what we're not to do and what we're supposed to do. We just simply don't want to do it. <laughs> the problem of why we don't want to follow Jesus isn't a lack of information. It's a sinful heart. Even after knowing, even after asking that question and knowing ourselves and having the answers laid out in front of us, oftentimes we just don't want to do it. And we do what we want. So we're, we're kind of hopeless, right? Half the time, we don't know what faithfulness looks like. And the other half, when we do know what it looks like, we barely want to do it most of the time. And we fail even when we do do it. 
How then can we, as encouraged by John the Baptist's life, by Andrew, by Peter, by John the author, how do we follow Jesus and cling to him and have this intimate relationship with him if we will continue to fail? Okay, last point, point three. Follow Jesus with your whole person. The emphasis here is person. Meaning, you're only a person. See, one thing... It's one thing to ask what faithfulness looks like. It's another thing to ask, where can I find the strength and the encouragement to continue doing it, although I know I will fail? It's found here. Only when we realize that our relationship with Christ is not based on how strongly we can cling to him, but on how strongly he clings to us. That is where you will find the encouragement to continue to follow, even when you're failing or when you fail. See, Take a look at these three disciples mentioned today. The only reason that why they followed Jesus is because John the Baptist addressed him as the Lamb of God. They're fishermen. They're simple folk. They didn't have things to offer. What audacity to ask the Messiah, hey, where are you staying tonight? <laughs> How prideful do you have to be to ask that? Unless you're confident that he is a lamb that is, will be slain for us and that our relationship is based on his work, what he will do, not based on my strength in following him. Now, they might not know the exact details of how the Messiah will perform his work of saving them. He, they might not know the cross and all that yet, but at least they know this is the, it's his strength that will save me, not, not my own. This is why we have courage to follow him and keep following him not because we're basing our strength or our commitment or our, our ability to follow him on, on who we are, but on what he has done for us. So what did he do for us? How can Jesus take in sinful disciples like Peter, who later actually will betray Jesus? When Jesus is going to be crucified, what did Peter say? I don't know that man. I don't know that man. I don't know that man. Three times he denied Jesus. How can Jesus take in sinful people? How can he call that person a rock? How can he call us and, and, and allow us to be part of his work and allow us to have a relationship with him? Because of the cross. He's able to love sinners like us and have a relationship with us and cling on to us with an everlasting grip because he himself has paid for our sins on that cross. You know, in all of John's focus in this book about following Jesus, John is big on discipleship about following Jesus, but he notes one thing interesting in chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 36, there's one place that we are called not to follow Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow. Where is it that Jesus was going where Peter cannot, where the rock could not follow? Where was he going that we can't follow? The cross where he would give unto us the record of his perfect obedience and take upon himself the wrath of God we deserve because of our sin. Saying what? You're only a person. Follow God, but know you're only a person. You won't be able to do what it takes to have a relationship with me. My bond with you is not built upon your strength to cling on me. It's forged with my blood. That's where you find the strength and encouragement to keep on following even when you fail. I love you too much, he says, to allow our relationship to hinge upon your strength. No, no. I'd rather die than not be with you. That's what he did on the cross, and he solidified our relationship with him. This is why Jesus can take in rebellious followers like us. The Peters of the world who are prone to performance and, and idolatries of success, and the Johns of the world who, I don't know, perhaps might be tempted to justify certain laziness. You know, one last thing was interesting. Note in verse 38 in our text today. In this verse, you see something important. You see the very first action Jesus did in his ministry. This is, this is Jesus. This is God, the creator of the universe, who has been incarnate unto flesh. What is the very first thing he did? Did he give us a list, of, a list of things to do? No. Did he give us 10 commandments, 20, 30 commandments to follow? No. He does so later. But the very first act he did, verse 38, he turned to us. Before anything else, he turned his face upon us. 
And many commentaries have noted that the Greek word for turn here in verse 38 is the same exact uh, root word in the Hebrew return found in Psalm 90.13. Let's read Psalm 90.13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us with the morning with your stead- in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This age-long cry for help that the Lord will have mercy on us, satisfy us, return, O Lord, how long? When is this going to happen? When are we going to once again be with you? And the first thing Jesus did on earth was what? He turned to us. And he said, in your weakness, in your frailty, I will commit myself to you and I will answer this age-long cry. When will I return? Now. So that you may rejoice and be glad all your days through my cross. This is where we can find encouragement and strength to follow even with all our weaknesses because of him. Not because Peter was perfect, not because John was sinless, not because Andrew deserved it, but because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Receive this love, this sacrifice, then follow him and ask yourself that question often. Based on who God has made me to be through nature and nurture, and based on my current season of life, how am I to be most obedient and faithful to my Jesus? If you have further questions about the specific answer to that question, um, I can't address all that now because a lot of you have different stories and you're in different seasons of life, but I encourage you to ask a trusted, mature friend in Christ or an elder of your church who not only knows the scriptures well, but who's willing to get to know you well so that they can give you a, a better or, or dialogue with you and how to be faithful, be most faithful to your Jesus based on who you are and the season of life you're in. I pray that we'll keep asking this question until our final breath. And when we fail, which we will fail, I pray that we're reminded that if we've received him on that cross, he has turned his face to us and solidified our unity in him. Not because of our strength to follow, but because his love for us. And if you have received this mercy, though we fail more times than we can ever count, he will never leave you behind. Your sins have been dealt with. So get up and keep walking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves your people, not based upon what we can offer you or our strength, but based upon your love and your mercy and your grace and what you have done for us on that cross as the Lamb of God, as the one who is to be slain and sacrificed for our sins. And now, Father, as we try to the best of our ability to follow you and love you and respond to this offer of love as we are in united relationship with you, I pray, Father, that you give us wisdom and clarity of how to know what it means to follow you based on how you've made us in nature and nurture and gifts and weaknesses you've given us. But at the same time, protect our hearts from not using that to justify individualism or relativism, which we know our hearts so easily fall into. Help us, guide us, that we may worship and love you and serve you in the way you have called us to be. And be content with that. Let us run our race. And Father, we thank you uh, for this gospel community that you have given us, that we may continually be in dialogue with each other to know how best to follow you. Thank you for your love, and thank you that we can be encouraged. Even though we fail, we can always get up, because you have taken the punishment for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.